Welcome to Armchair Justice, the podcast where we take a shallow dive into the world of the Supreme Court. This is a legal podcast for people who don't didn't study Latin in college. I'm your host, James Abador. I'm not a lawyer, but my co-hosts, Micah Chetta and John Gardner, are. Today, we'll be discussing judicial philosophy. Before we begin, I want to remind you that this is an educational podcast only. We are o- offering only our opinion and not legal advice. The facts of each case differ dramatically and cannot be covered in a short form podcast. If you think something we say is relevant to your legal situation, you should seek the advice of a licensed attorney. With that out of the way, it is time for our opinions, our full opinions, and nothing but our opinions. Welcome back, John and Micah. It's good to see you guys. Uh, This last week, we have had quite some uh, fun in the Supreme Court world. There's been a hearings um and amy coney barrett will be going before the senate for a full vote sometime next week it looks like so we want we thought we would break with our mold that we really haven't had but one case on when one podcast on and actually to take some time to discuss the differences between originalist and living constitutional judicial philosophies and so that our listeners can really know what those those uh, approaches to deciding law are and why it's so important to do, be an originalist and how that impacts your your judicial philosophy. Um, so, but before we, we begin there, I would just uh, like, Mike, if you could give us some, some uh, background on this whole confirmation process, the, just let our listeners know kind of how it go how someone goes from being an ordinary citizen to a justice of the Supreme Court. Sure, James, and I would just like to point out, John and I uh, correctly predicted who would be nominated, and uh, you know the recording that never did actually uh, come out to be produced. Uh, we were correct, and I know you picked someone else, and I know our viewers would just like to know that. Or I just wanted to say we were right. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. Anyways, yeah, the confirmation process, we've already seen a large part of it. So we saw the president nominate Amy Coney Barrett, uh, which is a very big part of the constitutional duty uh, for what the president does is a nomination of justices to the Supreme Court. But there's a, a process of where she then goes before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And then, uh, which we've seen this past week, where Lindsey Graham uh, had her come in, there was an investigative process. Uh, she, uh, Amy Coney Barrett met with individual senators, and now she just completed a week of being grilled, essentially, by the Senate. And this process is to sift out uh, how, if she's qualified or not. And then after, I believe it's on October 22nd, the Republicans voted to uh, hold the vote. Uh, for her on October 22nd, and the committee could actually give several uh, conclusions to this proceeding. So they could uh, provide a favorable nomination to the Senate, they could report it unfavorably to the Senate, uh, or they could not make a recommendation at all, or they could take no action at all. Now, if they took no action at all, it would die completely. And there have been several times where a nominee uh, did, that process did die right there. Uh, but generally, it's uh, it goes to the Senate, the full Senate for a vote. And that's really what we're going to be seeing next is a full Senate vote. Now, the Senate does have until January 2nd, 2021 to finish the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett. 
Um, so that's kind of our timeline. And that's the general process of nomination, uh, Judiciary Committee review, and then full Senate vote. Thank you, Micah. Um, John, we, we had discussed before this podcast kind of the, the foundation, if you would, of, of the judicial system, how the separation of powers that gets applied here. And, and I was just wondering if you could give us some background. Where does the Supreme Court get to get and the judicial system get its authority? Kind of what's the constitutional constitutional framework that we have that we've built the judicial system on top of? Yeah, great. Uh, so the judiciary gets its authority from Article 3 of the Constitution. Um, and in Section 1, it says it flat out. The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts. You know, this is talking about your state-level courts, your, your district-level courts, as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. The judges, both of the Supreme and inferior courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior and shall, at stated times, receive for their services a compensation, which shall not be diminished during their continuance in office. And these words are fancy ways of explaining that these judges get lifetime tenure, and they're paid while they're there. And interestingly enough is the, the section on good behavior. Uh, largely, these judges are on for life, and they're never going to go away unless they retire, they step down voluntarily, or commit a crime of some kind, or uh, are no longer no longer possess the mental faculties to to preside over the cases. Additionally, we see some interesting constitutional provisions that kind of undergird what Micah just talked about uh, about the, the confirmation process. Uh, of note is Article 1, Section 5, which says that each house, that's uh, the Senate, is, you know, Senate and Congress, uh, may determine the rules of its proceedings. And that's exactly what we've seen here. The Senate has its own rules for the confirmation pro process that Lindsey Graham's overseeing. And then in Article 2, Section 2, um, <clears throat> It says, he shall have power by and with the advice of and consent of the Senate uh, to make treaties. And Article 2 is referring to the President of the United States. That's what the he refers to, that the President will have the power provided two-thirds of Senate senators present concur, uh, and he shall nominate and by and with the advice of the consent and consent of the Senate shall employ judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States. So right there, it lays it out. It says that the president selects and nominates, the Senate reviews the nomination, and then you have in Article 3 what the judge is going to do when, when uh, appointed and confirmed. John, real quick, you mentioned about how the House may determine the rules of its proceeding. I think a, a, an example of that, or when I say the House, the Senate, rather, um, an example of that is in 2017, when you had Justice Gorsuch uh, being brought up on the nomination process, the Senate got rid of the cloture 
a requirement vote of 60 votes and they went to a simple majority. And what that basically did was it made it easier for the justices to be uh, voted through. And it got rid of uh, earlier on, um, I believe during the Harry Reid period, they got rid of the filibuster, which allowed a senator basically to get up and hold up the process uh, for a period of time. So those are two examples of where the House can adjust its rules. And but really now there's just a simple majority vote that the Senate now has to do. And it's really easy to be able to uh, get those nominees through. Thank you, John. Thank you, Micah. Yeah, the, the, the entire process as outlined in the Constitution, as set forth in the conf- confirmation rules and whatever, uh, can sometimes be overwhelming. It can be, I think, increasingly poli- uh, political. It's always been political per se, but, but really recently, it's gotten to the point that the National Review even said, uh, hey, uh, do we even need open hearings anymore? Like, what's the point? We already know everything they've ever said. We already know their 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 uh, CV, their resume. So why? Uh, but you know, this last one, I think most of us are very surprised when listening to it to to the hearings on uh, Barrett. How friendly the two sides were. It was almost a going back to the discourse and discussion that that we wished we could have seen with. You know, in, in every hearing, it reminds me a lot of, of of the Thomas Justice Thomas's tradition of always helping Justice Ginsburg up to the up to the dais whenever she came and, and helping her down. And it was these two ideologically separate people, you know, in one moment embracing each other and helping each other to do uh, basic everyday everyday things. Um, you know, and, and that coming down to to today's discussion, I think that really helped us get out some of these ideas behind what an originalist is, what a living, what someone who believes in the living constitution believes in. What are those? Uh, what are the what are the core tenets, and how those get applied to laws? Um, and I'm going to play a clip here that Senator Graham, who is the leader of the House Judiciary Committee, asked when ACV um, Barrett, she asked Barrett about what it means to be an originalist and, and Barrett's answer, of course, in that clip. I want to get uh, both of your feedback on, on the response. You said you're an originalist. Is that true? What does that mean in English? So in English, that means that I interpret the Constitution as a law, that I interpret its text as text, and I understand it to have the meaning that it had at the time people ratified it. So that meaning doesn't change over time, and it's not up to me to update it or infuse my own policy views into it. Micah, what are your thoughts on, on, on her calling the Constitution a law. Does that demean the status of the Constitution to being just another thing that Congress has passed? No. I mean, her position is very much from that originalist perspective of how you interpret the Constitution. And I think one way you can look at it is the beginning words of the Constitution says, we the people. And whichever side of the debate, you always have to start there of what did we the people mean? And I think one 
example of this is to an originalist, we the people focuses on what did the founders or those individuals who first uh, ratified the constitution, what was the intent and the document? And for those individuals who are on the other side of the debate, who may believe in a more living document, they would see we the people as extending forward into current day and trying to change or read into the document differences for our own day. And there are certain things you can get lost uh, when you do the process that the living document individuals take. And there are certain things that are preserved that you have when you take an originalist perspective. So with the originalist perspective, what's preserved is intent, the idea of what was the purpose of the document. And what you lose with the living uh, document interpreters is that intent because you are basically lining it with your own intent. And that's the real discussion is, is, is there a necessary process of updating the document through living perspective? Um, or is the uh, purpose of original intent so foundational to our constitution that we need to go back? And so Amy uh, Barrett, Coney Barrett's perspective here is a real uh, originalist take on the process of let's look at the original intent, see it as a law that was not meant to be reinterpreted. We have an amendment process and that's how you reinterpret the constitution if you want. Uh, so yeah, she very much takes an originalist perspective and explains it very succinctly uh, to Senator Graham and the committee. John, on, on that idea of originalist and succinctness, um, you know, I know you're an originalist, I'm an originalist, but plain devil's advocate here, like, times changed. You know, when the Bill of Rights was passed, eavesdropping literally meant you were under someone's eaves listening through their window to what they were having to say, right? Today we have a whole host of issues that technology has brought, as well as advancements in, in like healthcare and other issues. Why is it inappropriate for the, for, for the people who are on the Supreme Court to say, well, you know, here's how the law applies to this specific issue, or if, you know, the, the, the founders would have recognized this as a as a right, so it should be a right in the Constitution. Yeah, I, I think you point out um, an obvious reality uh, about this shaky ship of a government that we are all on board with and trying to steer over heavy seas. And um, some people want to grab the, the mast and turn one way, and others want to go another. Why it is so important uh, is because of this. The founders were, in fact, smart enough to understand that times would change. They themselves had plenty of experience with how rapidly things can change in just a generation, how in a country, a new government could be formed, wars fought with the superpower of the then world, and this little new experiment uh, started in 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 the United States, and they foresaw that. But what's key is they foresaw the response to take place with, as Micah said, the people. That it was that the people would identify these values as they changed through the legislature. 
And it was that their representatives would then legislate new laws. And if, say, something rose to, to be wanted to be enshrined in the Constitution as a fundamental right, that the Constitution itself provided for the mechanism for that to become a fundamental right through the amendment process, as Micah uh, point, so aptly pointed out. And I'll just throw on there, kind of going with John's point, is this idea of you know the amendment process. And when you look at what, for example, Alexander Hamilton said in, and I can't say Alexander Hamilton without thinking of the musical, of course, um, but number 78 of the Federalist Papers, Hamilton said that the Supreme Court was the weakest branch of government. And I think any of us today looking at the Supreme Court and the amount of uh, infighting that occurs over a nominee proves that we do not believe that is true. And so something happened from 1787 until today where this third branch of government, which was supposed to be the least in its capacity to annoy or injure, and that has changed. And what changed? And I think really the debate between originalism and living document uh, individuals has caused this change. And that's really where we have to consider, do we want to continue down this trajectory of having this tension, or should we go back to what Alexander Hamilton thought, which is we need to make this branch the branch that is least controversial rather than the branch that is the most controversial. And the last thing I'll say here is he said it becomes controversial. The third branch of government becomes controversial when it becomes married to another branch of government, i.e. the legislature or the executive. And what are we seeing today? We're seeing a court that's becoming a legislature or a pawn of the legislature and that's where we're seeing the Supreme Court now becoming a, a basically uh, married to another branch. And that's where we're seeing this tension having real problems for our Constitution. And just a quick plug for our last podcast that we took place. One of the issues that the court was faced was, is a judge a policymaker? And that was actually turning the interpretation of that Delaware state constitution that we discussed uh, in our podcast last week. So please go check that out if you haven't already. So uh, thank you. You know, and that brings up the idea of judicial independence, right? Um, I think for good reason or not, uh, Trump's nominate nominees to the Supreme Court have all been accused of being just yes men to the Trump, um, to, to the Trump doctrine. Um, I think if you actually look at how Gorsuch and, and Kavanaugh have voted thus far, have, have written, you would say that they're not. But um, he, at, there is this idea of can the government, can the president exert a undue influence on the Supreme Court? I think it was, uh, I think it was FDR on a nomination of, was it Warren or I forget who, but one of his friends to the Supreme Court, he said, look, I hate to do this to you, but we can't be friends anymore. Was was how separate those people have. You know, you don't want the president, you don't want the speaker of the house going golfing, you know, with the supreme with the chief justice. And then the next day they're listening about arguments that about a, you know, a bill that has his name on it. 
his or her name on it. Um, but also, you know, another question that were brought up, I think, a lot this week were a uh, question as to Barrett's judicial independence and whether she would be a copy of not just Tr Donald Trump, but also Scalia, um, whom she clerked for who she was, you know, who she gets a lot of her originalism for. And I want to get your guys' reaction to, to a comment she made, again, to a question posed by Senator Graham uh, to her on the second day of, of, of hearings. Justice Scalia, he was an originalist, right? Yes, he was. People say that you're a female Scalia. What would you say? I would say that Justice Scalia was obviously a mentor. And as I said, um, in the when I accepted the president's nomination, that his philosophy is mine too. But I want to be careful to say that if I'm confirmed, you would not be getting Justice Scalia, you would be getting Justice Barrett. Why is that an important idea? What's your guys' reaction to the independence, not only from the presidency and the, the legislature, but from past justices? I'll just say on this point, um, you know, if you think you know a judge, or a justice who gets appointed to the Supreme Court, watch out. Because I think what the Supreme Court teaches you is you don't always know what you're going to get. And presidents have been really, um, reg have regretted sometimes who they nominated to the court. One thing, and I'm gonna plagiarize here a little bit. One thing uh, Judge Barrett went on to say throughout her hearing process is she compared Justice Scalia to Justice Thomas and that they're both originalists, but yet would come out differently. And that's where I think it's really crucial to understand this is a philosophical perspective. It's this idea that you go back to, uh, there's a standard of looking at the constitution and how you do the process, but two people doing that system may not come out to the same conclusion. And so that's really what is telling in one sense of why the Democrats are so afraid, because they're fearful that if you use this system of thought or philosophy, it will undercut their policies. And that really does make you question how good are their policies in statutory form. So for instance, one of the big topics was Obamacare. You had heartwarming, heartbreaking stories, um, some of them rather heartwarming with the benefits of Obamacare. And what the, many of the senators were pointing out was Judge Barrett, if you strike down the ACA, um, then you're gonna basically have all these people lose their healthcare. Well, there's a really interesting take on that. In essence, what they're saying is your judicial philosophy could impact the constitutionality of this bill, or rather, maybe the bill is not constitutional from a living document perspective, and uh, it was rather constitutional from a living document perspective and unconstitutional from an originalist perspective. And that's why judicial philosophy is so crucial. But I think it's incorrect, just like uh, Judge Baer pointed out, to say that two originalists are the same. You wouldn't have two living document interpretationalists who are the same, nor will you have two originalists who are the same. But it, I think it is really interesting that the Democrats are so fearful of that philosophy striking down their policies. Yeah, I, th I think the only thing I could I could add to that is that um, it's a process, not an outcome. So originalism is a tool uh, that, depending on the hands of the person who's using it, will build different things. It will arrive at different conclusions. What 
historical documents are you looking at? What depth of historical inquiry do you make? Um, all these sort of factors change uh, the way in which we might understand the words as they were written uh, back then. Yeah, and I know the, um, the the idea of originalism and and the idea of living constitutional constitution was brought up a lot, as we've said. But also just that that idea that uh, the left does the the Democrats do like to kind of push the envelope, if you would, to pass laws that they are hoping the Supreme Court won't strike down. Um, and conservatives tend to be more standoffish and say, you know, well, will this law pass muster before we even get it through the, through the system? Um, I want to go ahead and, and uh, to transition here into kind of the other side of this issue. So we talked a lot about originalism, but let's talk about the living constitutional constitution approach and kind of those the way that someone who subscribes that that idea like justice ginsburg did would would arrive at deciding um on a case like in obergefell or in um or in the aca challenges um casey versus planned parenthood um or is it planned parenthood versus casey uh get the right order there um, those types of cases, how does that, how does uh, that impact, how does a living constitutionalist uh, come to their conclusions? Um, and I just wanted to play a clip with that background, that question. I want to play a clip. This is from Harvard's, a former Harvard president, uh, Drew Faust, uh, who when celebrating the 200th anniversary 200th anniversary of Harvard Law School, um, was giving a speech in, before six of the justices of the Supreme Court, uh, who all graduated from Harvard, um, were going to have some dialogue. And she was giving this speech. She said something very interesting about Harvard and its impact, about how it prepared justices to, or prepared students become justices and to have an impact on history. The place where Louis Brandeis shaped a constitutional right to privacy, where Charles Hamilton Houston prepared to do battle against racial segregation, and where a whole host of people beginning in the 1980s helped to lay the groundwork for what is now a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. So the interesting thing about this is the, what is the, is her phrase, what is now? As if at some point it wasn't, now it is. and. I, I've been reading my constitution, you know, I reference it with some regularity. Uh, I haven't seen the word marriage, let alone same-sex marriage, mentioned ever in any of it. So how does that, how does, how can she say that's a constitutional right? And how does a living constitutionalist really come into that idea? Micah, you want to give me your, your ideas? Sure. So I think there are two two parts to this. Let me address the first part. One thing my, I believe it was in con law class, one of the arguments was the Air Force is not in the Constitution, and yet we still have an Air Force. So we have a provisions about the Naval and Army, uh, but nothing about the Air Force. Times have changed. We need to reinterpret the Constitution to meet that process. 
And so, you know, you also look at the First Amendment free speech aspect. How do we deal with, you know, free speech has not, uh, you know, there are new things with internet or technology, but yet we still need to consider uh, the fundamentals of free speech. So there's a, uh, the living document, the living interpretationalist approach that says we need to essentially update the Constitution. Um, and, you know, the idea isn't, let's be honest, they're, they're not intending to say whatever they want, right? Their argument would be, we're not trying to say whatever we want, but we're merely trying to uh, apply uh, these ideas to a modern age, a new, a, a new environment. Um, with the Obergefell decision, I think there's a distinction there. And John, you can correct me if you think I'm, I'm thinking about this incorrectly, but that particular issue is looking at fundamental rights, substantive due process. And so I'm not, I wouldn't say the real issue there, I'm not sure would necessarily be a living uh, interpretationalist perspective versus originalism, but rather a 10th amendment issue of does this issue belong to the courts? And I know we don't want to divert too much, but I would argue that that discussion is really about the 10th amendment and what powers are reserved to the states versus what powers, what are fundamental rights. And there is very briefly, there is uh, a doctrine on fundamental rights where we look at um, our history and our background and various things to see whether there, whether or not um, there is a, f a fundamental right to be married or a fundamental right to privacy and those kind of things. Um, but I will say within that discussion, hidden underneath is a veneer of um, almost create what you want mentality. And that's where a lot of, I think, uh, originalists would kind of hesitate and say, you're using substantive due process as a vehicle to use your living interpretationless views to provide what you want. And so it's really an overlap of 10th Amendment, substantive due process, originalism, and living document. John, what do you think? Is that, is that kind of a right uh, combination of thought there? Yeah, I... I uh, I don't know why you're referring to me to make sure you have the right combination. I, I think you're spot on, brother. But uh, what what I'd add is uh, the Constitution, I like to call it, as the social glue. It's the social glue that holds us all together. It's the framework that we all agree upon. And we say, you know what? There, there are many other constitutions in the world. There are many other governments that have their own rights that they, you know, list out. Uh, but this is ours, and this is what we agree to. But what these living document philosophies or, or the sort of interpretive frameworks that go along with it, the, the issue that they run into is they change the glue without going to the people and saying, should, should I do this or should I not? And ultimately, that's really the problem. The problem is an issue of arbitrariness. It's arbitrary if you have a particular, particular judge, um, you know, a, a illuminating, you know, within that glue, a, a particular right that uh, one couldn't just plainly read. Why not have the people step in and speak to the issue specifically? Um, and it's something that we should be wary of 
in the sense of having a few select people who do that as opposed to the democratic process of the legislature, which is obviously much more refined, much more protracted, you know, and involves many more moving parts. Yeah, and if you uh, read the dissent, especially Chief Justice Roberts' dissent in Obergefell, they really highlighted that. They didn't say same-sex marriage is illegal, is wrong. What they said was same-sex marriage is a state's issue. The federal government shouldn't be involved in it. We should not make it a right. We should let the states decide person by person as to what that right is. So I want to transition here right at the end to one more, one more thing, one more section here, just talking about why it's hard to get a straight answer from a judge on, the, on any issue. And I want to play a clip. Again, this is a question uh, from the second day of hearings. This is a question that Senator Feinstein puts to Barrett on... Uh, on the appropriateness of uh, of Roe versus Wade and, and asking her to comment on that. Do you agree with Justice Scalia's view that Roe was wrongly decided? So, Senator, I do want to be forthright and answer every question so far as I can. I think on that question, I. You know, I'm going to invoke Justice Kagan's description, which I think is um, perfectly put. When she was in her confirmation hearing, she said that she was not going to grade precedent or give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And I think in an area where precedent continues to be pressed and litigated, as is true of Casey, it would be particularly, um, it would actually be wrong and a violation of the canons for me to do that as a sitting judge. So there you have her her response her kind of this artful dodge if you would saying hey i can't answer that question um there's a couple other ways she said essentially the same things the famous ginsburg rule which is no uh, no commitments no prefaces no forecasts um you know and she held that justices throughout have held this kind of, I'm not, I don't want to talk about policy. Um, and, and then, and, and then a, a kind of an originalist take on this is, well, I, it just depends on the, the case that's brought before me, right? I can't make a comment on a case I haven't seen. I need, I need that information. So what do you guys' reaction to kind of those types of dodges and, um, and, and how that goes, John? Yeah, I think I have two things to say. One, well, three. First, well done. Uh, she did quite a lot of dodging, but um, I, it was respectful. It wasn't quip-filled. It wasn't, you know, uh, sarcastic or anything like that. She handled it with grace. Uh, two, it, it's good to point out the difference between a politician and a judge. Politicians make their living by saying, I believe in X. So vote for me. And that's the metric by which they're successful. The better politicians, they believe in the better X's, if you want to call it like that. And that's how they rise up in the ranks. That's how they get more votes. That's the political capital that they sort of curry in. Um, and so in some sense, it's foreign to them to meet somebody who doesn't trade in the same currency. And 
that's where you see a lot of the the sort of uh, headbutting between the senators and the justice. Um, or for, well, excuse me, uh, may, future justice. Let's hope um, uh, in the in the questioning. And the second thing is this: every person uses the courts to vindicate their rights. And the last thing you would want is for the judge to not give you a fair shake. The judge is the referee. And if you go into the game and you already know that the judge ha- you know, favors the other party or has made comments in public uh, giving her opinion in favor of the other party, you're really not going to feel like you've gotten a fair shake in court. And so that's why it's so integral to the judicial canon not to speak to those policy matters or even to things that may be future controversies uh, before the court. Yeah, no, I think that was a perfect uh, button up of the topic there, John. It really does, you know, the only two things I would add is the judicial canons do restrict judges from addressing those things. And when she says that, she's not just using it as a shield, although in essence, it does become a shield, right? It allows her to get away from the many policy questions that were asked, for instance, on Roe v. Wade, on health care, on gun control. There were a lot of those questions by the senators, and I think you're absolutely right, John, about the politicals uh, getting the scorecard there. Um, one thing that I believe it was Senator Lee mentioned this idea of, um, again, back to Federalist 78, the difference between will and judgment. A judge is not to give their will, their own opinion, their own desire, but to provide a judgment. And when you ask a judge to forecast, to preview, to give that thumbs up or thumbs down, um, you're, you're showing, identifying your will rather than your judgment from the case specifics. And so often, I will say this, so often when we were in law school and reading through cases, there would always be this, well, this is a case-by-case perspective. And that phrase, that kind of concept is so true when you're before a judge, is that your case is unique. There is so many factors that are different, although sometimes mirroring other cases, there are various things that are different. And you don't want to judge that you... Um, has already said that your case will likely get a thumbs down because your case may present different facts that would not uh, meet, you know, that would be different from the case that was asked in front of the uh, hearing. Um, So those, you know, that really, when she answers those questions, there is some truth to the statements there. She's not just dodging. But that being said, it is a wonderful opportunity if you don't want to answer a question on Roe v. Wade, you don't want to answer a question on gun control, it makes for a great shield, but a valid shield, but it makes for a shield nonetheless. Just for our listeners, um, can you define for us what the judicial canon is? Uh, the judicial canon is the rules by which the judge has to follow, essentially. They're required to, um, uh, the rules of professional conduct and whatnot, they're required to follow these rules. Um John, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but for the attorney, it's the rules of professional conduct. We uh, lawyers uh, have to follow certain rules and requirements to meet a code of ethics. Um, lo and behold, uh, you know, who would think that judges have to fi- follow a code of ethics? We actually do. 
Um, whereas the judicial canons are, are uh, specifically for judges and they have to follow those requirements for ethical standards and whatnot. Well, thank you both. Um, this has been a very interesting, interesting discussion. I think very timely discussion. Um, there's so much that we can learn from uh, the judicialism versus uh, uh, originalism, excuse me, versus living constitutional uh, framework ideas, and, and we can go way deeper. There's multiple facets of each. We didn't get into originalism versus textualism, um, but uh, I think I think um, this is going to be. A, I think this will be helpful for you guys as you go forward this next week. The votes come in. You understanding how things go on. You listen to our next podcast. You can kind of see where. Uh, these views are being created, how these views are being created. James, who do you think um, the senators in the committee, do you think any Democratic senator has been persuaded, maybe Senator Feinstein, do you think it will be just a straight partisan vote or will there be some uh, maybe Democrats persuaded or Republicans persuaded? What's your, what's your thought in the last couple of seconds? I think it's going to be, um, what is it, nine Republicans on there that, or however many Republicans for, zero against, because the Democrats have already kind of forecast that they're not going to show up for the vote. There's some rules and reasons they would do that, but they, at this point, they're not control. Um, you know, Lindsey Graham can just change the rules and make it happen. So uh, I, I think it's still going to be partisan when it comes out. Um, I think they're going to emphasize that this is an odd time to be doing this is unprecedented. And so therefore we should hold this nomination. And that's why I'm voting against her. Not because she isn't qualified because she's eminently qualified, not because she isn't a great lawyer, a great jurist, because she's all of that. But this is just not the right time to be putting nominees up. That's going to be the, that's going to be the, the, the justification. Um, before, before we head out, I wanted to leave, our listeners with one quick, one more piece of audio I pulled. I think this is a very important uh, piece of audio. It comes from the closing stamp uh, statement of Senator Graham. And I, and I would like to preface this. Uh, I'm from South Carolina. We've got people from South Carolina. Senator Graham, if you're listening, we love you. This has been another podcast, episode two of armchair justice thank you thank you so much for being so supportive of this podcast